Tremendous change can start with one small act. Something as small as a broken window. That broken window can be one act of crime, one act of neglect, one act of hate. One broken window opens the door to many more, and the shattered glass of this house starts to shout the self-fulfilling story of a broken street. Before we know it, reality begins to bend around this new perception. This distorted environment starts producing refuse it never had before. Value drops. Poverty rises, homelessness moves in. Broken homes and families, abandoned wives, mothers and children. Gangs, violence, murder, and a drug epidemic taking more lives than we can count. Word begins to spread from conversations to a headline to a full-blown narrative. And finally, we're branded with the ugly nicknames and a repulsive reputation. The condition of the street spread to the block, transmit to the community, and infect the entire city. And from one broken window, we're now left with a broken city. Things are not as they should be. And what's interesting is that that's universally accepted. That people broadly accept the notion that we live in a broken world filled with broken people and that the world as it is, is not the way it should be. We've never seen the way it should be but we accept that it shouldn't be the way it is. And so even with the advancement of medical technologies and other medical advancements with, with agricultural technologies that have allowed us to produce more food in smaller plots of land, and even with, the, with other technologies, there is still a growing sense in the world that things are not necessarily improving, but maybe even getting worse. And so it creates some confusion on why is it this way and what can we do about that? And as we, we think about that, one of the, you know, there's a long list of examples of things I could give you to illustrate the point that the world is not as it should be. But, um, you know, meaning, for example, uh, global epidemics, sicknesses, Issues of war and famine, of, of natural disasters, of crisis, of racial tension, and other issues of marginalization, of political corruption globally. But a, a key issue that I think we hear regularly about, but I feel like it's important to put it back in front of you, is this issue of global poverty. You might not be aware, but, or maybe you've heard these statistics, but 3 billion of the about 7.2 billion people on earth live in what's referred to as extreme poverty. It's a poverty rate of people living uh, on $2.50 a day or less. Three billion people on earth, and of those, a third of them, one billion are children. Of that group, 22,000 will die every day as a direct result of their poverty, meaning they don't have access to sustainable food, and so eventually it causes their death. Within that, within that number, there's another group, 760 million, that don't have access to clean water. Now, again, these are things that you've heard, maybe you've, hear, you've heard mentioned and kind of maybe appealing to you to like give to, you know, digging a well in Africa or giving to help provide food to others. But that's not just a global problem, it's actually a local problem right here in Washington County, our poverty rate is such that one in every eight individuals is living below poverty level. And that number jumps to one in five for children, meaning 20% 20 of our children are living under poverty level. And those numbers jump up even more when you look at non-Caucasian populations within our community, meaning uh, about a third of the African-American 
uh, community is living under poverty. Uh, 22% of Latinos and 37% of the female-headed households, meaning you have a single mom, uh, she's 37% of those women are living in or under poverty. And, and interestingly, we have a campus in Chambersburg, and for them, uh, that number has been about 23% for the entire Chambersburg area, and within the last year, it, job, it dropped down to 19%, which means like, hey, we celebrate that, but you're still talking about nearly 20% of the population, but painfully, uh, about 27%, there's pockets that it's still about 27%, of this city. And when you hear that, we can kind of just scratch our head and be like, man, why is it that way? And something is wrong. And what can we do about it? And, and, and so taking that issue just alone and going, why is it that way? Why is it that? And there are different people that answer that question in different ways. I mean, why is the world not the way it should be? And some just approach it with a fatalist mindset. We don't know why, it doesn't matter why, that's just the way it is, and it's always going to be that way. Others have more of an evolution view of it, and that is that the world is slowly getting better, and we're headed towards a better world. The challenge with that is research doesn't necessarily suggest that. That while you may be able to solve one issue, you can grow more food and provide more food to those in hunger, you, you seems like you have another issue over here. So simultaneous to improvements in technology, well, then what you get is you get a, a skyrocketing in depression and loneliness. And so what happens is we solve one issue and we get another global crisis. And so it doesn't seem that things are improving. It seems that things broadly are actually getting worse. But then we look inward to the church community, and the church has often stepped up and tried to answer, provide answers for these complex issues. The problem is very often... We provide cheap cliches to complex problems. We say things like this, and I'm just going to put one up on the screen. We say things like, well, all things work together for good. You've probably heard somebody say that. And sometimes we say things like that when someone has gotten a terrible diagnosis. A mom had a miscarriage, gave birth to a stillborn child, or you're in a terrible car accident got horrific news, or got laid off, or your house is getting foreclosed on. And, and we say things because we don't know what to say, and, but we feel like as Christians we should have answers. And so we're like, I, I don't know. God must be doing good things in the middle of this horrible situation. What that leads down is a road that tells us that God is a sadistic puppet master. Follow me. Some of you have rejected God. You, to you, God is non-existent, or if he does exist, he is distant, and maybe even worse, sadistic, because you've been, you've been told that God is a, causing all these terrible things, but he's working it all together for good. And what I take away from that is, you mean to tell me that God caused this tragic accident, he caused that cancer, he sent that death or that disease or that war or that famine or that pestilence that's plaguing our globe? You mean to tell me there's a God who could fix it all and yet is causing it? If you have rejected God for that reason, let me encourage you. I've rejected that version of God too. We, we people who believe in an accurate interpretation of the Bible believe that that is not accurately who God is. 
And so if you've rejected God because you've heard about God from others saying cheap cliches like that, I'm with you and I would encourage you that that was the right and intellectually honest step to take. We reject the puppet master sadistic version of God. So then what is the answer? Well, at the very least, I have to start by saying it's not some cheap cliche. And maybe it's a little more complex. So when you're tempted, the next time you're with a friend that's grieving or a family member that's walking through great tragedy, be, you're going to be tempted to say something because it makes you feel better. Meaning we want to fill the silence with cheap cliches. And so we're digging deep inside of us trying to answer questions people aren't even asking. So first, don't answer questions people aren't asking when they're in grief and sorrow. And then secondly, be careful not to try to answer questions that you can't answer and that God himself hasn't answered yet. What I mean by that is most of the time, people are walking through great grief, they ask why, why, why? One of our examples biblically is this guy, uh, Job, who went through an incredible horrific loss, incredible tragedy, suffering, sickness, everything, and God never tells him why. And, and so maybe there's something fundamental to the fact that we need to ask why, but we're not going to get the answer to our why question. And so the next time you're with someone who is suffering, don't be tempted to fix the, fix the problem. Don't be tempted to throw why answers at why questions. And here's, here's where I'm going to drive with this. And look, I, I, I at least have a little bit of experience as a pastor who part of our role is that we respond to people's crisis. And when I was younger, I used to have an instinct just to want to give answers. And what I discovered is that people don't need answers to why questions. They need their pain, their suffering validated and not minimized. Here's the truth. If we could answer the question, it would minimize the pain. And if I could offer you answers for your deepest struggles, it would invalidate that you're struggling. Here's the answer. No, I don't need answers. I need someone to suffer with me. What interestingly, what we actually need in suffering is to know that there are others that suffer with us and can hold us and can comfort us and tell you, I love you and I'm sorry no matter what you're walking through. Somehow there is a sense of someone being present with me that gives me something I could not otherwise ever have. So this little verse that I threw up, all things work together for good, is often taken out of context and so I want to put it into context. The Apostle Paul was, in fact, writing about suffering. He was writing about the context of people suffering in, in a world that is suffering. But his answer is not a cheap cliche. He actually provides a very nuanced response. But it's not something you say. It's something you believe. Follow me here. This is important. We're tempted to say everything we believe, but sometimes it's more important what you hold on to inside than what you say coming out of your mouth, meaning what I believe drives my actions, and sometimes actions speak louder than words, and so what is it that Paul is driving at? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break down the passage of Scripture for you, but before I do, I'm going to give you the main point, the principle that transcends time, and it's this. When we are in suffering and we look around at a world that is suffering, the response of God is to offer us hope. 
And so the application is this, it's simply to live in hope. When you're looking at your own life and there's suffering, when you're standing with someone who is suffering, when you look around at your neighborhood and there's suffering, in a city of suffering, in a nation, in a globe that is suffering, we live in hope. It's not something we say, it's something we believe. It's not something I offer as a cheap answer. It's something I present as the action of my lifestyle. And too often, hope sounds like a cheap cliche because it sounds like a a magic wand, right? Like, it's kind of like, I just pray that everyone is okay. It's just kind of wishful thinking. In fact, it gets attacked, right? People come out and they're like, enough with your thoughts and prayers because it just sounds like a cheap cliche. Cliche, it sounds like a magic wand where we're all just kind of hoping that these things will, all these horrible things will get better. And that doesn't work. And it doesn't seem to work ever. In fact, things continue to get worse. And so we have to go deeper. Well, then why is that? Because at the root of the problem is not money. It's not a lack of money. It's not a lack of food. It's not a lack of clean water. Yes, those are the symptoms. But what's the source? If this is the way it is, then why is it that way? And what the Apostle Paul is addressing is this fact that there is a deeper root issue that is sourced from a spiritual crisis called sin. And that is that from the beginning, mankind rejected God. And that one rejecting inserted a a contagion into man, into society, into our systems, into the world that has spread and metastasized for every generation. And so it is this spiritual source of sin that has corrupted you and me, that has corrupted our relationships, it's corrupted our neighborhoods, our cities, our country, and the globe. Sin is at the source of natural disaster, of death, of disease, and that sounds like some cheap answer, but believe it or not, it's a much more nuanced, deep response to the deepest issues in the world around us. And that is that you can't, you can't dissect, you can't surgically repair, and you can't throw money at sin to fix it. This source of suffering in sin has got to be dealt with differently. And so the Apostle Paul is offering some deeper answer by challenging us to live in hope. And now you've got to say, well, then how do you live in hope if it's the response to suffering? And so let me break, that, let me break it down. This passage of scripture that leads up to that statement, all things work together for good. He writes this, for in this hope... So he's offering hope. In this hope, we are saved. Somehow, whatever we hope in, this thing that he's talking about, is our rescue in the midst of suffering. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. And this hope that's going to rescue us is an invisible thing. You're not going to see it the way you expect to see a paycheck show up or the way you expect to see food relief show up. It's an invisible hope. Who hopes in what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And then he jumps to this statement. He goes like this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So he says, 
Somehow there is a hope inserted into our suffering, and as a result of that hope, we have confidence that God is not causing, but God is at work in tragedy, at work in suffering, and he is at work in the lives of those who love him and are called living out his purposes, meaning this is not some global approach, but it's a deeply personal approach to suffering. And the, and the answer he gives, since it's nuanced, meaning it's, it's much more personal and intimate, is this. He starts by addressing the source of suffering, sin. And so he opens that chapter with this statement, and this is his initial response to suffering. He goes like this. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this word condemnation is the key to the issue of suffering. Because here's what we instinctively do. When we look at the problem of suffering and it cannot be solved, we look for someone to blame. We blame people for wars. We blame people for poverty. We blame systems and politicians and governments and economies. We blame those who've hurt us and that's why we suffer. And even if we can't get our finger on an exact person, we just blame the process. Someone or something is to blame. And if we can't find anyone to blame, then we blame God. Because someone has to be at fault. And so that's the concept of condemnation, right? So we condemn someone for the ills and the problems of the world. And, if we, and, and, and sometimes we, we have this built-in instinct that even in the problem, in the place of blaming others, we also blame ourselves. And you and I carry this. It, it, there might not be a direct link to the bad thing that happened, but I believe that if I've done bad over here and bad things happen here, it's probably the bad I've done that creates bad over here. I mean, it's kind of like this karma thing coming full circle. Now, here is the deal. Because I blame myself and I blame others, I believe that I and you should be condemned for the suffering of the world we live in. And the Apostle Paul starts by saying there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning you believe in Jesus through faith, he removes this shame and guilt. How is that possible? Here's what that moment does. And here's the the application point I want to give you from this concept. It's this, to live in hope. Meaning, I start by saying we got to live in hope. That's the answer, right? So how do you live in hope? You trust God's goodness even when you can't see it. Even when the entire world tells you there is no God, and if there is a God, he's distant, and if he is not distant, then he's sadistic. Here's what hope does. Hope tells me that I can trust God's goodness even when I can't see God's goodness in a world that is broken, sourced by sin itself that is causing cataclysmic ruin in the world around us, in our immediate world, and in my personal life, then I know that there is a God that I can trust who offers hope. How? Well, here's here's how. God could have stayed distant. He could have transcended our suffering. He could have stayed above it. He could have ignored it and turned his back on us. He could have avoided it and just steered clear. He could have recreated this whole thing, but here's what God actually did. He stepped out of his world of perfection and paradise into our world of suffering. He became one of us. In fact, when Jesus came into the world, he could have come as a royal king, but he came in poverty 
to suffer with us. And not only did he suffer with us, he suffered for us. Because this sin suffering has the result of not just ruin in our lives, and it doesn't just lead to death and disease, it leads to eternal judgment. So what Jesus did was he dealt with the source problem. He comes to earth, enters into our world, into poverty, into suffering, and then he takes the collective eternal judgment that we are facing and he puts it on himself, our shame, our guilt, our anguish, and he carries it to the cross. He goes to a death sentence on our behalf, suffering on our behalf, absorbing the eternal ruin that we all deserve so that when he died, he died once for all. Here's what Jesus did. He entered into our world to suffer. God's response to suffering was to embrace it. God was deeply nuanced in the way he approached sickness and disease and sin and suffering. What he did was he entered in and he said, here on the cross is my answer to suffering. I will absorb your shame. I will absorb your guilt. I will absorb your condemnation. I will absorb your eternal judgment so that you do not have to die in your sins facing an eternity separated from God forever. But Jesus not only died, he rose again from the dead and in his resurrection, he triumphs over the grip of sin, liberating us from sin's hold on our life and sin's source inside of us. But he not only liberates us from the power of sin, he frees us from the fear of death because he gives us the promise of eternal life. So now it reframes my view. I see the world differently because Jesus suffered for me and he forgives me of sin. He frees me from this spiritual condemnation. Now I no longer interpret suffering as a consequence of my sin, meaning when bad things happen, I don't believe it's the result of me having done badly. You see me? So now there's condemnation removed, and so now I see suffering through a different lens. And what I then believe is that there is a God that I can trust who is doing good even when I can't see it. God is weaving his best into my life even when it doesn't feel like best. Meaning, God's goodness is not what feels good or looks good or tastes good. God's goodness is based on an eternal perspective that the only thing I can do is simply trust when I can't see it. And that leads to a next step, and this is important. Paul, the Apostle Paul writes this, and we're just going to kind of circle back. I read this before, but let me, because there's another principle I want to pull out of this. It's this. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. There's something about hope that gives us the strength to continue when we feel like we can't continue. It actually gives us the empowerment to endure through hardship. And so then he writes this, right? And then he goes like this. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He's saying somehow when you have hope, you continue on when you should give up because you know that God is at work in your life and he's working through your life, his goodness and his purposes. I hope that you at least feel a little bit like, man, mind blown, right? So what's the point? If we're going to apply this to our life, meaning if I'm going to have a physical takeaway, a tangible application, it would be this. To live in hope 
this whole like, what does it mean to live in hope as a response to suffering? Then I, I don't give up when things are tough. He said, because I have hope, I'm willing to endure and wait, wait for it patiently. That there's something about hope that makes me see suffering as something different than condemnation and blame. Suffering no longer is a consequence of my wrongdoing or the wrongdoing of, that you did or the wrongdoing of the government or the economy or some other cosmic problem, but that there is a God who is at work in me that is working through me his best even when I can't see it. Therefore, I don't give up even when I want to give up. And some of you are on the brink of giving up. Listen to me. You're on the brink of giving up on your education or on your marriage or on that relationship. You're on the brink of giving up on the best things that God has designed you for. Now, if you're giving up on something that you should give up on, then stop it. Because some of those things are contributing to your suffering. Meaning, if you're giving up on an addiction, good. If you're giving up on pursuing desires that are destructive, good. I'm talking about giving up on the things that God has put in your life as a gift because you see them as difficult to sustain. Marriage is actually hard work. Parenting children is hard work. Uh, Working diligently in your career is hard work. Education is hard work. Being faithful in life, walking in integrity, it's hard work. And what we do is we do it for a while, and then we're like, you know, that's not working for me. And so we give up. But when I have hope, I don't give up, even when I feel like giving up. See, here's the deal. It's something I believe, not something I say. So It reframes my view of suffering and pain because now when I recognize that suffering isn't the result of my sin, although it is the result of sin in general, but I know that God has forgiven me, then I see suffering as an opportunity to become. Malcolm, uh, I can't even say his last name, but I'm going to just put it up on the screen here. Um, This dude, um, great writer, he wrote this, everything that has truly enhanced and enlighten my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. And then he writes this, if it were possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo jumbo, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it banal and trivial to be endurable. Meaning if you could actually extract out of life suffering Life would not be happiness. Life would be a cruel joke. It would be banal. It'd be, and, and so what's craziest, so let's talk about it. Not only does suffering transform me, meaning it, you, your life, and I did a whole sermon specifically on this, so I'm not going to re-preach this. You can go back and listen to it. But your life is not the culmination of the great things you've done or accomplished, but a string of suffering. You are who you are as a result of the pain you've endured. You become a better person because of the suffering. Our nation becomes a better nation when we suffer, and the church becomes a better church through suffering. There's something radical about this, that the sin that causes suffering, when God inserts healing, it actually, suffering transforms us into the healing agents of God. In essence, when I discover that God is not against me, but God is for me, then I understand that God is at work in me, which means he's at work through through me. I become someone that I could not have been outside of suffering. 
and we discover that God is someone we would have otherwise never known outside of suffering, follow me, you will never know God in the way you could know God unless you suffer. That's why I love going to other countries. They pray in a different way than we pray here because they pray out of desperation. They pray knowing this is their only hope. when, When you see families in incredible want, they understand God is their provider. You know what you discover? The issue of poverty, this is what they, when they do interviews with people that are in extreme poverty, they will not say that they are in poverty because of a lack of clean water or a lack of food or a lack of finance. You know what they define poverty as? A lack of dignity, a lack of opportunity, and a lack of hope. We have the answer for that because we come in and we say we know a God of hope, a God who offers dignity because he embraced your suffering, he embraced your poverty, and a God who can help you to take steps into the opportunities, the purposes that he has for your life. Here's the deal. I I know personally that God is a provider because I know what it has been to be in want. I, I know God as protector because I very distinct moments in my life when there was nothing I could do about the crisis situation. Only God could protect We've known God as a healer because we've been sick. And God is a miracle worker because we've been in need of a miracle. We discover God's goodness because of our suffering. So one final application point. The Apostle Paul is also writing to another church, not just to the church in Rome, but to the church in Corinth. And the backdrop to this verse is this. This is his second letter, and he's writing this after having just acknowledged um, that he was beaten, thrown in prison, shipwrecked, people chucking rocks at him, trying to murder him simply because he believed in Jesus. He had nearly starved to death. He's been stripped naked. And then he writes this, okay? That's the context. For our light and momentary troubles. That's what he was referring to are achieving for us an eternal glory. Somehow these things are reminding me that I'm not home yet. Somehow these things are telling me it's almost like a snake shedding its skin. These things are stripping away my hold on this life and reminding me that my hope is in the life to come. An eternal glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on the hope that we have in front of us, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And the point is that you and I, we live for the hope that is to come where one day all of the injustice will be be cured with the justice of God and all the wrongs will be righted and every tear will be wiped away and every sickness healed and there will be no more sorrow and no more death and no more suffering. Our hope is not that this life will fix it all, but there is a God who will bring ultimate healing and ultimate right and ultimate hope in light of that, okay? Now, that's not the, that's not the application. Well, I know we should celebrate, but follow me. There, that does something inside of you. That's the point. Now, I begin to live in hope. And that hope brings healing to a hopeless world, which means we are called to be the expression of hope, the application, meaning what do you do with it? You are the living expression of the hope of God. People people don't just walk around going, oh, God offers me hope. 
They don't see the sunrise. They, they could, but they don't. What they need is your hands saying God is a God of help. What they need is us not saying it. We don't show up with quick fix answers, live in hope. We show up as hope incarnated in our physical bodies because we believe that Jesus Christ is for us. Jesus embraced our suffering through embracing our sin. He absorbed our death, our judgment, our eternal punishment. And because God is for us, we are for others that are suffering. We embody hope and we respond through hope to those who are suffering, but our answer isn't to give a hand out, it's that hand up, and the hand up is to offer dignity and hope. Our greatest goal is offering hope, not, not financial help, not food help, not responding in natural disasters, but we have to show up and we've got to treat issues of sickness and disease and poverty in order to show them that there is a God of hope. They say hungry people have no ears to hear good news. So you feed the hungry body so that the ears are open to hear the good news of Jesus. And so our response is, like God, we don't ignore, we don't avoid, and we don't transcend the issues. We dive deep in and we get intimately close, we get personally involved. Now this is coming in. This is how this applies to our lives, right? You and I have to get intimately close and personally involved, which means we do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. For your response, tag, you're it. Your responsibility is to do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. This is the heart behind the miracle offering. I didn't preach this whole sermon to say this, but I'm not gonna miss the opportunity. The heart behind the miracle offering is not that we give away a bunch of money, but that we partner with hope bearers. People that know how to share hope and then we can resource them appropriately so that they're, yes, they're responding to real needs, but with the goal of bringing hope and I get a privilege sometimes of reading the different stories. We don't know every story, but we certainly try to pay close attention to all the different stories of what God is doing through our kingdom builders' efforts and specifically through the miracle offering. Last year, it was our largest single offering ever through the year. And I'm telling you, that resource was hope to hopeless lives. And when you and I respond in our outreach efforts and our partnership with, the, with REACH and our partnership with missions projects and our partnership locally with Adopt-A-Block and Adopt-A-School, the whole goal there is to do for one school what we wish you could do for every school and for one block what we wish you could do for every block. See, what it is, is we started by showing you the video, this whole idea of the broken window theory, that one broken window becomes multiple broken windows, then people start to move out of a neighborhood because that one house is bringing down their, their living standards and then you tear apart a neighborhood of city. And we say, well, what if we fixed one window? Could it bring hope to a broken neighborhood, hope to a broken city? And so our efforts are to fix one window at a time, believing that when you fix a window, you bring hope that brings healing to a community and a city. And that's what we want to live on is the front lines of fixing one broken window at a time. And that's for you, okay? So the tag you're it is this. Some of you came in and your attitude of God is that he is either non-existent or distant. And today you're willing to lay aside and reject that view of God to embrace a God of hope who embraced your suffering. 
so that he could forgive you of sin and give you new life. And if that's your, where you're at today, then your first step is to say, I believe in Jesus and allow God's spirit into your spirit to forgive you of sin and give you new life. For others of you, you believe in Jesus and it's time for you to show it by being the life-giving expression of hope, by doing for one what we wish we could do for everyone. And so I'm gonna encourage you, would you just close your eyes for a moment? I wanna pray with you. Jesus, thank you. I'm overwhelmed, God, that you created a perfect world and we messed it up. So you came to earth to embrace our suffering, our sickness, our sin, and our shame in order to free us and offer hope so that we could trust that you're good even when we can't see it. And therefore, you give us the strength to not quit even when we want to so that we could become the expression of hope in a hopeless world. Jesus, thank you for loving us so much. We offer our lives to you. Now empower us to do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you have enjoyed today's experience. We also hope that this message has challenged you and will encourage you in the upcoming week. And if you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ today, congratulations, welcome to the family, and welcome home. One of the most important first steps that you can take is by letting us know. You can click the prayer tab or you can visit us at lifehousechurch.org. And if this message or ministry has blessed you in any way, feel free to partner with us financially. You can click on the Give tab or you can visit our website and click Give. We are so thankful that you joined us and we are thankful that you are part of our extended family. We can't wait to see you back here next week.